about you guys, that fires me up. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise in this place this morning? Amen. Jesus, our priestly king and covenant. So we're going to talk about this morning. How Jesus came, not as a conquering hero, but as a king who had priestly duties, who humbled himself to give all for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you've done for us today. We thank you that through time you have made a way for us. There's no accident today, God, that you have called us here to hear a word from you. Father, we pray right now in your name that the Spirit would open the word to us, that you would place this in our hearts, and that you would hide it, God. Not for us to hold on to, but for us to share with someone who needs to know you and hear from you. And Lord, we ask these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Everybody said, Amen. In your worship guide, there is an outline, and I'd love for you guys to take that out if you would. Um, just to go along with me, kind of help me out a little bit. This is uh, unusual to me. I don't do this. You know I get up here and sing, so it kind of gets weird right now, okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to take this out, and we're going to work through this together. And I want you to be able to uh, have this for a later time so that the Lord will have something maybe to to open up to you a little bit later on that he didn't even open up to me. Amen? So if you would, let's pull that out and look at that. We're here today to see what Jesus has done, how he's been sent, and the price that he's paid for us. And what we're going to do is we're going we're to dive back in time and we're going to see two different, very different kings, but very similar. We're going to look at King David, a man after God's own heart and a man that was anointed by God for a mission and a purpose. He was the prototype of a priestly king. Then we're going to move to the New Testament and we're going to see the culmination, the perfection of what that looks like. And it's an awesome, awesome trip through what God has done then and what he's going to do for us now through that. So if you would turn in your Bible with me to 1 Chronicles. This is uh, recorded in two different places. It's very important. What we're looking at with David first, David under the old covenant. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, and it's also in 2 Samuel. If it's recorded two times in the Bible, and we read it in two different places, it's pretty important. So we're going to look at 1 Chronicles, and we're going to start off with our first bullet point. And David had an identity. He had an identity. In 1 Chronicles chapter 1, there's a chronology, there's a genealogy that takes us from the time that a promise and a covenant was given to Abraham and brought all the way down the line to David. It's not happenstance. It's not just the way it went about. It was ordained, preordained, and ordered by God. Number two, David was anointed. 
He was anointed for a task, anointed by God. What I want you guys to understand is, is that David was not the greatest of his family. He was the least of the sons that Jesse had. So when Samuel was brought to the house of Jesse to figure out, wow, through the Spirit, who is going to be this king? Who is going to be the one who God has told me is going to take the place of Saul? At that time, Saul had displeased God. He had, he had turned to himself. He had turned to his own ways. And he was not able to continue in the task that God had given him. It was taken from him. And it was to be given to a new king, a king that Samuel was going to be able to find out when he gets to the house of Jesse. Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse by the Lord to anoint the next king of Israel. He's a prototype of the priestly king to come. Samuel looks at each of Jesse's sons, but he's looking at the outward appearance of each one. And in his mind, as he is counting through each one, he's saying, surely this is God's anointed. He goes from the firstborn all the way through the sons. God's not telling him anything. This isn't the one. God's telling him, you're looking on the outside. I'm going to look on the inside. That's who I'm trying to find. So when, when Samuel gets there, he is going to have a sacrifice and a ceremony commemorating this time of finding the new king. And all of the other sons of Jesse are called in, except David. He's left in the field. So the one that's supposed to be anointed is not even part of the game. Keep in mind, guys, that when you are being called by God, it is not going to be a man that does it. Do not listen to the world. God sees the inside. He will be the one that raises you, that raises you up. Amen? Let's read 1 Samuel 16, through, uh, 16, 13. This is, finally, David comes in. He's looking at him. It describes him as being a ruddy-faced with really good-looking eyes. I don't know what that means, but obviously that kind of got his attention. But he said, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So they were witnesses to this. Really, in their mind, they're thinking, it's probably me. It isn't going to be David. It's going to be me. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And one thing I do want to remind you about here is, is that David was the king that Israel needed, but he was not who his father Jesse or even Samuel was looking for. It's just like what the video said. It's not who they wanted, but it's who was needed. He was the least of his brothers and the last son. Men look at the outward appearance and use the most logical choice, but God looks at the inside of a person and uses the most unexpected and illogical ways at times to bring about his plan and purpose. It is to demonstrate it is by his power alone that it's accomplished. Amazing. Number three, David was tempted. If you would, turn to 1 Chronicle 21.1. And we're going to start this story, an amazing story, about how David was tempted, choices that he made, 
and the consequences that happened after that. In First Chronicles 21.1, it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number them. And in 2 Samuel, it tells a little bit different story, uh, but it's a little bit harder to grasp for us. In 2 Samuel 24, 1, it says, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Wow. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he allows Satan to come in and incite David to do this. So why did he do this? Uh, scholars say that back during this time, you had an extremely strong time of providence, of peace, and prosperity. And when that happens, a lot of times, us included, we will start working ourselves backward away from God. When things are good, we really don't have to call on him. We really don't need to know who he is. So they said that not only were the people sinning against God, because there really wasn't any outside pressure, outside wars or forces coming against them, that inside David's leadership, the commanders of the armies and the leaders that he had set up were infighting, trying to gain political power and strength outside of the will of God. It was really a rough time for the whole nation of Israel. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. That's tough for me because I know that when I am not seeking God the way that he's wanting me to seek him, there's sin. And there's a price for sin. So any temptation that I'm drawn into or that you're drawn into is allowed by God. It is a temptation that you are prepared for. God will never place you in a spot where you are not prepared for the temptation that's about to head your way. Keep that in mind. Let's go to number four. David disobeyed God his father. And let's read Second Chron uh, First Chronicles 21, 2 through 6. And I just want to kind of unpack this a little bit about what exactly happened during this time with David and why this census uh, was displeasing to God. He says, So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Catch this real quick. Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? I want to stop right there. There's a man who knows what's about to happen standing next to David. A commander in his army that he trusts with his life. He is giving him a word don't do this. I can see this is going to turn out badly. We've known from the time that we've been brought up, we can't do it this way. If you are in counsel that is not for you, but against you, move toward wise counsel. 
Move toward godly counsel. Find a group of friends you can surround yourself with that will speak life into you. And when they speak life into you, listen to them. Listen to what they have to say. Man, those friends are hard to find, aren't they? That will speak truth to you. Nevertheless, the king, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David and all Israel, and they were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, there was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the Lord's or for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Even toward the end, Joab can't do it. He knows it's the worst thing that he could be doing right now. He just stops it. The reason why this was such a bad thing that David did was because this is a sacred event. The census is called the mitzvah. The mitzvah is a time that the men would be able to give an offering to God and it was very sacred, and it was given to Moses through God for the specific time and purpose of atonement for the nation of Israel. If you would turn to Exodus 30, 11 through 16, and I just want to go through that real quick about how that actually looks and should have been done and why this was really so bad, okay? In chapter 11, it says, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them so that there will be no plague among them, there's, there's the curse. There it was. David's known this from the beginning of time. He's been brought up in the Torah and the Talmud. He knows exactly what's going on in this situation. But he absolutely despises what his friend is telling him, and he disregards what, what the law is telling him to do. He says, this is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the services of the tent meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. They still practice the mitzvah at the fast of Easter. It's such a sacred event that even though the sacrificial system has been broken down during the fast of Easter, Every boy, man, 20 years or older, brings half a shekel to give to a charity. It's still happening today. I really love what it says in the Bible about the half shekel. What it tells me is every soul is the same to God. He plays no favorites. The rich man could not give more to gain more atonement. The poor man could not give less because there was a standard, a standard for the price, a ransom for himself, for his soul. How amazing is that? You cannot buy your way to anything. God sees it all the same. Every soul is precious to him. Now, why this was so bad? When Satan tempted David, 
He tempted him in fear, and he tempted him in pride. Why does he number the men of Israel? Does anybody guess? He wants to know how many guys can go to battle for him. He wants to know how much power in the flesh that he has. What does this look like? Can I beat the guy next to me? It is absolutely not what this census was for. Instead of retaining what he had been told all of his life, all of his teachings, all the way up through his childhood and to where he was now, he disregarded the power of God and he embraced the power of man. That's exactly why this plague is about to come on the nation of Israel. Number five, there were consequences for Israel and David's actions. 1 Chronicles 21, 7 through 14 says this, God was displeased with this thing. So he struck Israel, and David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. Gad is who wrote Chronicles. And he says, go and speak to David, saying, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So God came to David, and so Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine, three months to be swept away before your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now therefore, consider what, I, what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. He's begging mercy. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. There is a cost to sin. There are many who will tell you that grace upon grace upon grace and sin is no more. There is a cost to sin. David was the one who was supposed to protect his people. He was their priestly king. He was the last point, the last link before this plague hit. And 70,000 men, because of his final decision on what was going to happen in this census, died. Let's look at number six. David humbles himself before the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 21.15 it says, And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. It's really cool because in this very spot is where Abraham and Isaac went to the top of the mountain without a sacrifice. He's testing Abraham. Are you going to kill your firstborn son? The thing that I promised you. The thing that is going to be the promise that I give you for the nation to go on, to prosper like I have. They go to the top of the mountain. There is not a sacrifice. They bring the wood. They bring the fire. He places him on the altar. He's lifting the knife to plunge down into his son Isaac. 
and God stays his hand. Do you see the similarity? He is always a God of rescue. He is always a God who is just in time for you in whatever situation you're walking through. Amen? Amen. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord. On the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite is also known as Arona. So David went up at the word of Gad. Man, you talk about a difference between a guy who's going to find out how much power he's got to now he's walked to a point where he is offering his family to God to save the people. That's a big fall. You're at the height of what you got. You have sinned. Now you're at the lowest point, God. Just do it to me. Don't do it to these guys. They don't deserve it. But he didn't realize that, yes, just as he had slid backwards with what he was going through, with what he was trying to do in his own human power, his whole nation had gone with him. A nation looks to its leader. A nation looks to its king. So goes the leader, so goes the people behind him. Number seven, the priest, King David, offers the sacrifice. How do we know David was a priest? Well, we know that he gave sacrifice to the Lord. This was something that only the Levites, the house of Levi was only supposed to be able to do this. He was, he was not supposed to do this, but... Because he was anointed to be this priestly king, there was a provision for him to be able to work in this area as well. The reason why is, is that later on, Jesus, out of his household, is also going to be a priestly king for us. He's also going to be able to do the works of what a priest does. Now, Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat as David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David and went out to the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the side of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely give it. I will buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. That didn't happen except for a priest who was ordained to do that. Fire comes down from heaven. He doesn't light a fire. Fire comes out of heaven, consumes the sacrifice, and pulls it back up. The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, 
he offered sacrifices there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. That was in northern Israel. But David could not go before to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. So not only that day did he act as a priest, he purchases the things that is going to be needed for the sacrifice, but he also gives the amount of gold needed to buy the site that later on the temple is going to sit on, all in that very day. So through all these things that have happened, God still comes through with a redemption story at the end, stays his hand, and chooses his place to place his holy temple, the temple of God. Amazing. God doesn't do things one at a time. There are always things happening around what God is doing, blessings that are happening that you don't even know about in your life. He's always taking it to a different level than you and I can ever think of. He works on many facets that we'll never be able to see. Amen? Amen. Well, what I want to do now is I want to work to this. Everybody good? Everybody good? It's not terrible? All right. I hope it's not. I hope it's okay. Jesus and the new covenant. This is the really great part of this whole story that God is telling if we can look through this and see the similarities between King David and Jesus, how you had a prototype of a man who was imperfect, but then the culmination and the perfection of a man who was. The pointing down through the line, through the ages, of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus has an identity. So just as we saw in 1 Chronicle, in Matthew chapter 1, we take the, chronicle, the chronology and the genealogy all the way back from the promise given through Abraham, through the house of David, and to Jesus. It's an amazing story. There's no way that this cannot be ordered by the hand of God. If Jesus is not our Savior and not the Son of God, there is no other candidate. When the temple was destroyed in A.D. 60, certain things had to happen in prophecy for that to be correct. Jesus is the only one who fits the mold. There are no others. I love my Jewish brothers. They're still looking for a Messiah. He's been here. His name is Jesus. You cannot take Daniel and the prophecies that happened to the cutting off point of the destroying of the temple in AD 60 and come up with anything else. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God and He is our Savior. Amen? Jesus humbled Him. Oh wait, I want to do one thing. I'm sorry. I missed one thing. Matthew 20, 25 through 34. Um, can we go to that real quick? Is that okay? I don't think I have it down, but this is, this is pretty awesome. I, I just want you guys to see this. Can y'all turn to that with me real quick? I, I want you to see how the Spirit works um, because these men would have never known who Jesus is. They would have to be told that. Starting with 25, uh, what has happened before this time is that uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee have come to him with her sons and they're asking that they have their place on his right and his left side in the kingdom. And they don't know what they're asking for. They don't understand what kind of 
responsibility and what kind of anointing that comes with. And Jesus explains to him, you don't want this cup. You don't understand what you have to walk through to be this. And I don't have authority to give it to you. Only my Father in heaven has that. So we've got to that point where it says in verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, meaning they lord their power over their people. It's not this way in my kingdom. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That's a humble king. That's what he's come to be, a servant and a priest. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Go back to, to, uh, to Moses where they're giving the shekel. He's giving a ransom for himself. It's never going to be enough. It's under the law. Jesus says here, I'm going to be the ransom. I'm going to give it for many. I'm going to do it one time, and that's going to be it. I have the authority and the, and the anointing to do that. And as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Do not miss this. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. How do they know? They're not te- they don't have a Bible. They don't have Matthew. They haven't been doing a Bible study. No, the Spirit of God comes to these guys. They're in need. They need a touch. They're telling Jesus, you are the son of David. That's amazing. There's his identity. It's already been told. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, twice. They're proclaiming it. I don't believe it was only done for Jesus. I believe it was done for all around, but I believe in the spiritual realm that the enemy knew, hey, this is being revealed. There are people getting this. I've got to figure this thing out. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you wish me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Wow. Absolutely awesome. Jesus humbled himself before his father. Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He's asking I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me to do this? But Jesus answered him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus humbled himself and is baptized. Why? He has no sin, no reason to be baptized. John sees the mismatch and says, Please don't make me do this. It's it's not to be permitted. A man immersing God, his Savior. But the prophets proclaimed he would humble himself. He would be without sin, but like us. The takeaway here is that Jesus became like us, a man to endure all that we do, to take on the role of priest so that that he could save us in being baptized. He shows everyone, including the enemy, that he is humbling himself for the sacrifice he's going to face later. That's what he's doing. Jesus was anointed After being baptized, 
Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Another, another uh, translation says that it transfigured him. It changed him. He was lit up with the Spirit of God. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God promised to give a sign to John the Baptist that Jesus was Messiah. He gives two. The Spirit descending on Jesus and resting on him, and verbally from God himself from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Unbelievable how it's likened to David, the, the anointing. A man anointed David. God anoints Jesus. That's the difference. Jesus was tempted. Matthew 4, 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus was led by the Spirit into temptation. Why? Why? Because God wants you to walk in the victory he's already won. And he's prepared you for it. God will lead you around the battles and the, and the temptations that you are not ready for. But he will lead you into situations where you will have to choose. Am I going to trust in God or am I going to trust in me? Listen to the Spirit. Trust in what he tells you. Jesus was obedient before God, his Father. Matthew 4, 3 through 10 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you were the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written. He's standing on the word. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. The irony of that, he's standing on the very same place where David was standing with the sword spread out to take out Jerusalem. He's standing at the very spot. What an amazing place in geography. What a holy place. And he's standing right there at that very same spot that Abraham was with Isaac, David was with whenever he was with Ornan, at the, at the threshing floor, and now Jesus is there as Satan is tempting him. He says, you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you. If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I believe there are three certain ways that the devil tempts every one of us. One is pride, one is fear, and one is who you are. If he can get you in any one of those areas to start thinking that you're more than who you are, start thinking that you have so much fear in you you can't do anything, or he just tells you your identity is wrong. You need to latch onto what the world has, onto, has for you. You need to go above and beyond. Be all you can be. Do all you can do in yourself. It's not who your identity's in. But the main thing that I see there was how does Jesus overcome the temptation? He is walking in the victory that's already been won. Can Jesus light this guy up? No doubt. He's got the authority and the power and the anointing. He can come up with something new. 
Could he just disappear from the situation? Go somewhere else. Continue his ministry. Get out of this temptation. He doesn't do it. He stands right in the middle of it. And he does it with the word. Why does he do it? Why is it written this way? So that we'll have an example of how we're supposed to do it. I heard a story said one time that in World War II, when they were clearing out the villages, moving from house to house, that you had these guys that did not know how to clear a house. They had never been in this. They're sitting back. They don't know what to do. They're scared to death. A major comes up to them and says, why isn't that house cleared? We don't know what to do. Come on. He snags them. He grabs what he needs. They storm the house, throw the grenades in, blow it up, take the house, take the property. He looks at them and says, you see what I did? Yes, sir. Then go do it. It's exactly what Jesus is showing you right there. He's showing you how to win the victory in the victory that's already been won. He doesn't do something new. He doesn't do anything that we ourselves cannot stand in the victory ourselves and do as well. That's how God is. That's how Jesus is. There was victory in Jesus' actions. Matthew 4, 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Some translations say that he cast him out and banished him from his presence by speaking the word over him. He could not stand in it. He could not stay where that truth was. He had to go. The victory that he won here is the victory that had already been won and had already been noted in the Torah. And now we stand in that victory. He said, these things and greater shall you do in my name. And he gives us examples all through the Old Testament and the New Testament of how you were supposed to handle these situations by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you guys to really start tapping into that. I want you to know who you are. You're a child of the king. The priest, King Jesus, offers the sacrifice. He's the ultimate sacrifice. David bought the stuff he needed to place on an altar, and God accepted it. Jesus laid down his life and bought us. He paid the price for us. The leaders of that day could not stand what he was saying. They were hooked into the political and powerful realm of being able to lord things over people through the law. When he came, he brought freedom. No man had spoke like this before. They had never heard anything like this, the power that came from him in love. They had to do something with him, but they didn't do it. He allows himself to be a sacrifice for us. No man took his life. He lays it down freely. He goes through the, cruci the, uh, the, the process leading up to the crucifixion, going to Pilate. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. False accusations left and right about him. He is a lamb walking to the slaughter for us, the Son of God. Read with me in Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things are testified against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single 
charge so that the governor was quite amazed. They find him guilty. He's placed on a cross for me and you. And then he yields himself up as a sacrifice for us. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatane, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a separation between the Father and the Son. And I really believe this. I know that God could not embrace him like he was as being a sin offering for us, but I really believe that he was so separated and lonely in where he was, he knew he was going to have to walk through giving his life up in death on his own. And there was no comforter at that point. And he did that for us so that we would have a comforter. Amen. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. No man took his life. The shepherd lays down his life willingly for his sheep, yielding up his life as a sacrifice for all, for you and for me. No one took it. He gave it willingly so that all might be saved. The greatest gift of all. A good man will die for his brother. A great man will die for a stranger. This man died for everyone so that we could know him. It is a story of rescue. It is a covenant for you. It is not written in some yellowing page on some distant scroll for a different person. It is for you. It started with the fall of man. When the consequences of sin took us to a place where we had to be rescued, it was a promise through Abraham and his son Isaac that there would be hope, that there would be a nation that would be raised up, that the world would look to. It was brought again when David was promised, your seed, the house of David, will continue to reign for eternity. It ended with a culmination, the perfection in the covenant with Jesus Christ, given the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, if you would, have our band come up in place now. What does this all mean for me? That's what you're asking yourself. It's a really cool story. I love hearing about how God does things supernaturally, but you have given me something that I'm not real sure about. What does this mean for me? Let's go back to the three things, fear, pride, and who you are, your identity. For the believer in fear, do not be afraid. what the enemy tells you or what's going on he has overcome the world that's why he came in pride humble yourself before the Lord the worst mistake you can make is that your walk with God is you you have anything to do with that it is by his mercy and his grace alone by the blood of Jesus Christ that sets us free keeps us in right relationship with him. It's by no works of man.
know your identity. You are a son and a daughter of the king. This world is not yours anymore. You belong to something so much greater. His kingdom and what he has for you. And I know there's folks here that are still searching in this place. Someone does not know this Savior. They don't know this covenant. In your fear of what's going on around you, how is all this stuff going to work out? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why am I still addicted to this stuff? Know that there's a good Father who delights in His creation and you are His creation. His perfect love breaks every bit of that. breaks all fear. In your pride, humble yourself before Him, before a loving Savior that came for you. Turn from your sin. The sin that holds you captive and let Him free you. And you have an identity. God has a plan and a purpose for you. It's crafted from the beginning of creation. He created you as his beloved. Trust his plan. Trust in him. I want to say this prayer with every head bowed and every eye closed. I just want to pray this over someone who doesn't know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would permeate this place, that you would set free the captive, that your love would envelop and overflow hurt, pain, confusion, and loss that the world has heaped on. Father, right now we trust in you. We don't know all of this, but we know that there's something going on right now that can't be denied. It's not working for me on my own. I really need this Savior, Jesus. I really need to know his love, and I need to know his rule. So, Father, right now, we pray to you, King Jesus, come into my life. Make this covenant right with me. This promise is for me. I trust in you. I turn from this sin that has held me captive for so long. I look toward the hope that you give, the blood that you shed, the gift that you gave, and I ask you to come into my heart, into my life right now, to change me, set me free. Lord, we pray right now that you would touch the members in this church who are walking through so much right now, God. Loss of loved ones, illness and sickness, God. Turmoil within a family. A child turning their back on them as a mother or a father. Father, we pray for that. Lord, we thank you that you've been in this place today, that your truth has been given, that we can hold on to what you have for us. Lord, we love you.
and we praise you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Can we give him praise across this house? Amen. Guys, thank you for coming. It's been great being able to speak to you today. I just want to leave you with, he came as a king that nobody wanted, but he was exactly what everybody needed. Embrace him. Embrace who he is. He loves you so much. You guys have a great week. Love you guys. Let's praise him one more time across the house. Thank you all.